This is a Triple J podcast. Pack. Money. Why are we so weird about talking about money? Like, have you ever spoken to your workmates about how much you get paid? Would you tell your workmates if you were getting a pay increase and they weren't and you felt like you're all doing the same job? I'm Joe Lauder. I'm hanging out with you all this week on the Hack Podcast, and we're about to find out about some new laws in Australia that ban what's called pay secrecy at work. We're also going to chat about artificial intelligence because it's shaking up our lives in so many ways, but especially in the music industry, because you could already be listening to AI-generated music and you might not even know it. Hack. Especially if you're a young worker, I think you're quite aware of how important it is to get paid correctly and also more broadly, like how there's significant pay discrimination just in the book industry and in publishing itself. On Triple J. Do you know how much your colleagues are getting paid? Or what about this? If you thought that you were all doing the same work, would you let them know that you were getting paid more? Lots of people don't, and in some cases it's because your work hasn't let you talk about this. If you've done that, I would love to hear from you about how it went down. Send me a message on 0439 757 or call and tell me about it, 1300 There's this really interesting case that's just gone to the federal court where a Melbourne woman says that she stopped getting shifts at her work after she told her colleagues about her pay increase. Because it turns out there are new laws that ban what's called pay secrecy. Kimberly Price has been chatting to her. After finishing her master's, Natasha Seymour was keen to work in the publishing industry. She reached out to her network to find the right job. And in mid-July 2022, she started working casually for Melbourne's oldest bookstore, Hill of Content. Really enjoyed it. It's definitely my style. I love chatting to customers. I'm pretty outgoing, so that was really fun, just being able to talk about books with people every day. Natasha says she's pretty proactive. And after a while of working around 26-hour weeks, she looked into her pay. Sometimes you just assume that you're getting paid correctly and you assume that people have it under control. There's a couple of different levels for retail workers, but the level three pay band comes with more responsibilities, like opening and closing, and that's what Natasha says she was doing. Basically just inquired. I wasn't even like, you have to change this. It was more like, look, I've seen this. I wonder if we're meant to be getting paid at this level three, which was like a dollar something different an hour. So it wasn't significant. The owners of Hill of Content emailed back and said they'd look into Natasha's pay. Next payday, her pay was adjusted and she was even back paid for part of her job. Out of a courtesy, Natasha told the two other casual workers about her situation. Maybe a bit naively, I didn't know that it would be such a big deal. Natasha even forwarded them on the original email that she sent to the owners. Some of the other workers asked the owners about their pay as well. A couple of weeks later in February this year, there was no word from the owners about the other staff's pay. And then out of the blue, I got the termination email from one of the owners saying, you broke our trust, like this was meant to be confidential. You weren't meant to tell anybody that we gave you a pay rise. We only gave it to you because, you know, we thought you were management material and we wanted to incentivize you. At the end of the email, it said Natasha would get no more shifts. I didn't, definitely didn't see it coming. After having her contract terminated, Natasha reached out to Victoria's Young Workers Centre to see if she had any rights. Little did she know, in December 2022, a new law came into play. 
the federal government passed new laws that empower workers to talk about their wages. This means that you can no longer get into trouble for talking about your pay or asking your workmates about theirs. That's Felicity Sauerbutz, the director of the Young Workers Centre. They're supporting Natasha through her case. In the past, bosses could direct you to keep your wages secret, and that was problematic in workplaces where some workers are paid less than others for the same job or paid under the award rate. The new laws don't always mean you can tell your workmates your pay, as some workplaces do have a secrecy clause in their contracts. Natasha's case is heading to court, where she is looking for financial compensation and emotional damage for the termination of her contract. And the case will test these new laws. Felicity says it's important to talk about pay differences. If they do uncover an issue at work, it's far less daunting to speak to the boss together as a collective rather than on your own. Hack reached out to the owners of Hill of Content and they responded. Unfortunately, your inquiry is now a matter before the courts and we cannot comment. Suffice to say, we are a small family-owned business who has never had an employee complaint before and always treated our casual staff fairly and as part of the family, and will continue to do so in the future. Natasha says it's super important that everyone knows their rights at work. Educate yourself as much as you can. The more you know about other people's experiences and what they're making around you, like the more you can advocate for yourself. Hack on Triple J. That was Kimberly Price reporting on the text line. Someone says, I quit my last job because I found out the new person they hired to do the job was they that was doing was getting paid $5 an hour more than I was. Hannah, you're from the Central Coast and you had a similar thing happen to you? Hi, yeah. A few years ago, um, a company I worked for, we all started in this role at the same time and we were all having a chat one day about the pay and one someone sort of mentioned, you know, oh, we're not getting paid enough, you know, this isn't the right amount for what we do. And one of the other girls piped up and said, well, you guys are getting that much? I'm not getting ah. that much. And um, she actually brought it up with the boss and then disciplinary action was taken against Jeez. her bringing it up. So it was really, really like, she didn't get fired or anything, but it was a pretty serious It was definitely. Oh, well, thanks for sharing your experience. Sorry to hear about that. Yeah, thanks. That's Hannah from the Central Coast. Now, to find out a bit more about this and even just, you know, chat a bit about our culture around this and if it's changing, I've got Glenn James with me. He's the creator and the host of the My Millennial Money podcast. Glenn, thanks for coming on Hack. Hey, thanks for having me. Just to start with, do you think people should be open about what they're getting paid in the workplace? I think it comes down to do what you're comfortable with. I mean, all the contractual stuff aside, if you're talking with a colleague and you've got a relationship and you both want to discuss your earnings, I mean, what's the problem? If, you know, if businesses are scared, well, maybe they should just pay their workers correctly. Not sure going out on a limb there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, look, I think this is a classic case of that 20th century legislation and maybe mindset lagging behind 21st century community expectations, social expectations. But what about in some instances, would it shut down opportunities for some people getting ahead? Like in some instances, if someone gets a pay increase, this case, a boss said that they thought she was managerial material and wanted to incentivize her. But just generally, doesn't there need to be space for bosses to recognize that maybe some people are working harder or they feel like they want to promote some people over others? 
Yeah, and this is the nuanced part about um, salaries because one end of the spectrum, you've got workers who might be a government role um, in a pay band, so everyone knows you know they're all on level three. This team's on level four. That's awesome. The other end of the spectrum, like what if there's a role where you've got a a new grad coming in to do the same role, maybe in accounting, and they've got less experience, so they will be paid less. Like there is a fact there that, you know, people with more experience generally get paid more. So that's the nuanced part to it. Uh, But certainly if there was two individuals in a team doing the exact same role with the same experience, well, that's a problem if we find out that someone is getting paid less. There's been a lot of discussion as well around pay secrecy and this um, around it potentially increasing the gender pay gap. Do you think that's true? Look, I think the more we talk about it uh, generally or conceptually, the better it will be for our society. Like it's as simple as that. Like if you're in a, a business, you know, not government, but in maybe the small business like the bookshop or something like that, where there is a team of people and there is more discretion from the business owner and they might think they can get away with paying, you know, women less. Well, if people are talking about it, that's just going to go away. So we need to talk about it. But one thing that I found fascinating in the My Millennial Money Facebook group, I ran a poll today. I asked a thousand people if they would be comfortable talking about pay with their co-workers, 95% of people said yes. And that's fascinating, yeah. That is really interesting. Do you think that has changed? Is that a cultural change over generations compared to previous ones, like, say, our parents' generation? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we know one thing, like, with the rise of technology, you know, social media, like podcasts, like my podcast, like it is more commonplace to just chat about money. So that's awesome, right? We we can talk about money freely. But the thing that I want to say is like when the changes came out about um, pay in contracts, you know, you still do not have to tell co-workers your salary if you don't want to. So that's the number one thing. You do not have to tell anyone squat, like your personal health or your salary. But if you've got a good relationship with someone and you want to have a chat, Absolutely. I, I think it's society is cool with that. Yeah, it's more the laws that some places where there was a contract, um, a clause in the contract where explicitly not allowed to talk about it. That's what it's stopping. Heather, you've called in. You had a similar experience. Can you tell me what happened to you? Uh, yeah, so I worked for a big named company and I was talking to my co-workers and um, workers that were working for like an opposing company and I found out that I was severely underpaid for the job I was doing and then when I asked if I could get a pay rise uh, they kind of were like you're not ready for it you can't be in a higher position even though I was doing their job and their executive mm. jobs and I just was like I've had enough so then I quit and went to a job that would pay me more. Yeah right so it, it caused you to leave essentially. Yeah, because they just, like, I was getting paid biscuits, like, essentially. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks for calling in and sharing your experience with us. No problem. That was Heather. Um, Glenn, it's so fascinating. It's really interesting to hear about those changes in the culture. And I guess it'll be interesting to see what happens, um, you know, as these laws come into effect and more people learn about them. Really appreciate you coming on the show and having a chat about it. Thanks, Joe, and thanks to all your listeners for hanging out. 
That's Glenn James. He's a creator and host of the My Millennial Money podcast. We have so many messages coming in about this. Kieran Victoria says, I didn't even know that we potentially weren't allowed to talk about our pay or that in some cases you could be disciplined if we talk about it. Someone else says, we sign a contract now at work that says you're not allowed to talk about your wage. Nothing creates a toxic workplace faster than people not being allowed to share their wage. And someone else says, I quit my last job because all the men were on more money than me and we all had the same job. Hack. Sharks are notorious as the killers of the sea, but these misunderstood creatures are actually very important to maintain the natural balance of our oceans. Fish are friends, not food. On Triple J. Hey, I'm Joe Lord. I'm hanging out with you all this week on Hack, filling in for Dave Marchese. Shark nets at beaches have been really controversial for years, and there's a new report out now that's probably just going to add to that controversy. If you don't know, in New South Wales, there are 51 popular beaches that have shark nets, but they don't only catch sharks. There are other marine animals that end up getting caught in them too. Like in the summer of 2021 to 2022, one in five of the animals caught were protected species, including a dolphin and even a humpback whale was caught. But an environmental group is challenging some of that data that's come from the government. They're concerned that there are some animals that are caught up in this the shark nets that aren't recorded. Andre Borrell is from the group Envoy Foundation. They've just released that report I was talking about. Andre, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. Can you just tell me a bit about what your research found about the animals that were getting caught in these nets and what happens to them when they get caught? Yeah, so uh, look, it's a, it's a pretty complex topic, but uh, I mean, the main thing I think, and what you were referring to in the intro there, is that the most concerning thing we found is that the the data, the catch data, does not always match what's actually going on. So we did we 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 did a um, basically a GIPA request, a Freedom of Information request, and we got a bunch of catch data. We also did a GIPA request and got a bunch of catch images. Now, what we found is those don't always marry up. There's dead animals pulled out of shark nets that we have images of that don't appear in the catch data. So data integrity is going to be a huge issue that I think this program needs to explain. Um, Further to that as well, when a a shark that they're not targeting is caught, um, if it's found alive, which is a big if, um, this goes for any animal actually, if it's found alive, it will be released. Um, Now, the other thing we did is a a GIPA request for uh, videos to do with the program. Now, what we found was uh, animals that are released, they go down in the data as alive, right? So they can brag about we release this many animals alive, the program's not that bad. When you actually watch the video of the release, some of these sharks turn turn belly up and and sink. They certainly don't swim away healthy. So uh, that's just two examples. There's so many question marks that we've found about this this program, so many inaccuracies with the data. It's really, really concerning because the impact that this program is having is going to be way bigger than than what we think it is or what the data is saying it is because of that data inaccuracy. The New South Wales government says that they've increased the number of animals that are released live from the nets in recent years that you were just talking about. And you've acknowledged in your report that the government has been evolving this program around shark nets. Doesn't that mean that they're doing something right here or there is, there's definitely some progress that's being made? Look, I think the important thing to realise is this program started in 1937. So there was no TVs. There was a handful of there was a handful of traffic lights in Sydney. Um, just the first few were starting to pop up. If you wanted to fly to London, it would take 21 stops and 12 days. 
That's when this program was originated, right? So the fact that they are making slow progress from that is nothing to brag about. It, it's it's comical, in fact. Unless these, unless the department or these politicians are um, watching black and white TVs and flying prop planes when they fly internationally, slow, steady progress from a program that was invented in 1937, a time when slaughterhouses were still dumping effluent into into the harbour, which is what created a, a, a spike in shark attacks in the 1930s, um, which is what led to the meshing being put in place. Uh, you know, unless these politicians uh, are doing all those things, I don't see why they would be moving with the times in all the other areas of their life, but but not this program. There are other technologies that are being implemented as well as nets, right? Can you tell me a bit about the other technology that's being used? And also, like, I guess, if you would like to see that used more. Look, drone surveillance is fantastic. Surf lifesavers getting trained, putting drones up in the air, and you are far more likely to spot a shark for a drone than you are to catch it in a shark net, which is which is comically small, which is one thing we didn't address either. They're so much smaller than the beach they're trying to protect. They're, they're not a barrier at all. They're just a, a fishing net hoping to catch stuff. Um, so drones are fantastic. Taking, taking matters into your own hands, you can wear personal deterrents like shark shields. That's a fantastic approach as well. And then there's smart drum lines. Smart drum lines are a little bit more polarising. So a smart drumline is a fishing hook with bait on it that aims to catch sharks. A message is then sent to a contractor who who, who heads out there, tags the shark and releases it. So um, these are all better than, than shark nets, which are a complete joke, 90% cat, 90% catch. The 51 shark nets that you mentioned in your intro, last year they caught in the entire year, the entire operation of them, they caught 51 sharks that they were actually looking for. 51 sharks out of 51 nets in a whole season of operation uh, and all the other hundreds of things with dolphins, turtles, rays, whales, you name it. So, um, look, those are some of the other things that we could and should be doing. And to speak specifically on smart drum lines for a moment, if the idea is to catch um, as many target sharks as possible, uh, which, which is what the program is trying to do, well, then smart drum lines are far better at that. Whether that translates to, to, to actually being safer at the beach is, is a question yet to be answered, but they catch a lot more target sharks on smart drum lines than they do in nets. Nets are comically poor at catching them. They catch everything else but not the target sharks. So, yeah. Just lastly, is there community support still for shark nets? I imagine there are some people who find some comfort or security knowing they're there. Is that the case or not so much? What we've found with the hundreds of people, probably thousands of people we've spoken to on this, is the only support that still exists for shark nets is people that misunderstand what shark nets are. The support for shark nets comes from people that are under the impression that there's some sort of barrier, that they're somehow keeping sharks out there and people in here, and therefore shark nets are a good idea. That's one small section of the of the community that still supports it. If if you clarify that misconception, you explain what they actually are. No. There's no support for these for this program at all anymore. And and to that point, the DPI, the department, the minister, they know this. They do community polling. The community polling is very, very strongly opposed to shark nets. So uh, they, they know that. They just choose not to act on it. Andre, thank you so much for coming on Hack and having a chat about it.
Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. That's Andre Borrell, and he's the founder of the Envoy Foundation, and he was chatting there about their new report into shark nets. Someone on the text line says, isn't there better technology than a shark net? What about all this new AI? Now, in a statement to Hack, a spokesperson for the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries said they understand the important role that sharks play in the marine ecosystem, and they just wanted to point out as well that the nets are checked every 72 hours for any animals that are alive and can be released. They say that all nets are removed for the majority of the whale migration season. And they also go on to say that the New South Wales government is committed to an evidence-based approach to shark mitigation and supports a reassessment of shark nets to move to new technologies, which is very interesting. Hack. We were able to take John's voice and get it pure through this AI. So there's a good side to it and then a scary side. On Triple Jack. Yeah, you might have heard the news today about a new Beatles song that's being released later this year thanks to artificial intelligence. They haven't caught, taught an AI program to write Beatles songs yet, although I'm sure, you know, if someone hasn't done that yet, they're probably doing it pretty soon. But it's got us all thinking about just how much AI has totally shaken up the music industry already. And, you know, this is just the start of things to come. And the next time you're listening to one of your recommended tracks on your music app, you should ask yourself, was this song even composed by a human? Nathan Nigidula has been looking into the future of music streaming and AI for us. That was a robot's impression of Kanye West covering Carly Rae Jepsen's Call Me Maybe. It debuted at number 35 on AIHits.co, a website that charts the hottest 100 songs made by artificial intelligence. And the scariest part, it sounds pretty good. Here's the number one single. It's an artificial Drake voice covering the song Winter's Cold. The future of music streaming could be changing, and you might not even realize it. More and more, AI voices are being incorporated into mainstream tracks. Like this filter from music artist Grimes. It allows anyone in the world to transform their voice to sound like hers. Now, anyone can make a Grimes song. Now, anyone can make a Grimes song. Even the Beatles just announced they would use AI technology, helping isolate vocals from John Lennon to remake some early demos. But this raises heaps of questions around things like ownership, royalties, and the human voice. On apps like Spotify, there's an abundance of AI-generated music. They're usually composed of 45-second tracks, and they flood the platform, hoping to go viral and make money. This song, called Martha Bass, for example, was uploaded more than 50 times under different names just to get more clicks. And when served up on recommended playlists, most casual listeners wouldn't even realize it was AI-generated. In the future, we could end up listening to songs in ways we can't even imagine yet. Video games like GTA and Fortnite have built-in radio stations, where players can tune into songs while playing the game. It may not sound like much, but since 2017, music streams on Fortnite have made $25 billion. Yes, with a B. And artists are getting paid too, with at least 40% of net profits going back to creators. And on that note, I leave you with wise words of wisdom from the AI app, Inspirobot. AI-generated music is a perplexing harmony of innovation and possibility, mate. 
Okay, maybe we're still a couple of years away from a complete AI takeover. Heck, on Triple J. <laughs> that was Nathan Nigidula, aka Nathan Nigidula Grimes, reporting. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> With me now, though, to talk about this some more when I can compose myself, is Justin Shave. He's the co-founder of Uncanny Valley. It's a tech music collective, and he's the head composer there and also a sonic technologist. And they actually won the first Eurovision AI song contest a couple of years ago. Thank you so much for coming on Hack, Justin. Oh, thanks, Joe. Can Happy you just, to be here. <laughs> I'm, yeah, still still trying to get over the Grimes thing. Um, can you just start by quickly giving me a couple of examples how you guys use AI to generate or work with AI in music? Yeah, well, we look, we use AI in heaps of different ways. Um, just like um, Sir Paul, as we heard this morning, we, uh, we use AI to split up files um, so you could do source separation and and grab a vocal from something that's with a guitar or a piano and say, oh, I don't need the guitar or piano, I'll just take the vocal, thanks. Um, that's one way. Another, another way is um, AI mastering. So we'll, we'll get a computer to listen to the way a song sounds and then um, use the, the what it learns about listening to the song to apply it to our song to make it sound the same. Um, and the last way we do it is, is we use it heaps as a happy accident machine. So we'll just type stuff in or play around with stuff in the studio and see what comes out the other end and go, wow, that's super inspirational. A bit like when you get writer's block. Right. So you just get it to be like, this is what I've made before. Can you just kind of just give me some creative spark of like my yeah, own creativity like- coming back at me? Yeah, you can use it like you're outsourcing your, your, the creativity power in your brain. You say, okay, I, I'm a bit tired to be creative today. So learn about how I create things and help me maybe figure out what the next idea is going to be or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> but, is, that's really interesting because it seems like in a way AI, um, some people are already using it, but it feels like some musicians might move into this space where it's almost like they become or you become more like art directors and composers and AI becomes a tool. Is that a good way to describe it? Yeah, it's, you could sort of describe it as prompt, prompt craft, I think is the word. Prompt craft, you, nice. You, yeah. <laughs> you're like, you, you, you think about how you might like to prompt the AI to do something and, and direct the way it comes out. So you're kind of like a meta creator in, in, in some sense. Meta creator, I love this. Yeah, um, yeah. We, we know that streaming obviously caused a huge disruption for the music industry when that came in about a decade ago and it had a really big impact on artists' revenue and, yeah, the, the money that they were getting in. Do you think a similar thing is happening at the moment with AI and we might find the case that musicians find it even harder to make money? I just think that there's, a, there's, a, there's going to be such a, a glut of creative stuff coming through with, with people using AI um, in their own way. Um, and I think the good stuff's always going to shine through. I mean, the way that AI should be used is a like a co-creator, like an, it should augment your creativity, not, not replace it in a way. So in that sense, I don't think it's going to, I don't think it'll, it'll affect the way artists are paid. If it, if mm. There'll still be the, 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 the kings of our own creation. I found it really interesting that Grimes, that filter, um, I'll try not to laugh, but that filter where she lets anyone use her voice. But she actually said that she'd split the royalties 50-50 as well. So she does retain some um, ownership over it. Yeah, it's like an interesting um, sort of com- commerce solution, I think, to license your own voice and say, 
Yeah, you can have 50% of this. Um, there's another artist doing that as well called Holly Herndon. She did a couple of years ago where she um, uh, sort of worked out some software where you could license her vocal and use her vocal and then she'd be paid via the blockchain. It was all very oh. interesting way to do it. But very yeah, it's, it's, all these models are kind of starting to emerge, which is, I think it's a way to for artists to make more money. Yeah. Product. You definitely mm. seem like you're one of the optimists in the space and you, you're already kind of using AI in your music, but are there any areas where you're particularly worried about the impact of AI on the music industry? Uh, I think it's, I'm, I'm not worried about it. I think it's just part of the, the, the path we're on with creative tools. I mean, AI is just the next creative tool that we're all going to work with. Like we transitioned from tape machines to pro tools. We transitioned to, from drums to drum machines to synthesizers. Then we started using samplers. And in a sense, AI is just the next tool in the line that everyone's going to jump on board and, and create more amazing things to listen to. So in that sense, I'm not really that worried. <laughs> right. So you still think we're on this gonna, path already. going to be a role for humans, I guess, to like, I guess also inject emotions and personality and that kind of like human experience into it and then just use AI to help them out? Yeah, nothing's going to beat the, the, the straight-up human emotional input into their music. Um, it's just using AI to, to fill in the blanks or to surround it and augment what's already there is, I think, going to be the way forward. Uh, it's super interesting. Yeah. I really appreciate you telling us a bit about your work in this space. Thanks for coming on Hack, Justin. That was Justin Shave. He's a co-founder of Uncanny Valley, which is a tech music collective, and he's the head composer and a sonic technologist there. That's it for the Hack podcast. I'll catch you tomorrow. Bye. Hack on Triple J.